You're listening to Plenary Session. Okay, we have a great episode of Plenary Session for you today. We're going to talk about three things before we cut to our interview. So here they are. The first is NAB paclitaxel and gemcitabine. Is it an acceptable alternative in frontline cholangiocarcinoma? Next, we're going to talk about palbociclib. We finally have the long-term overall survival results to Paloma 3. And surprise, the finding did not reach statistical significance in the intention to treat population. Okay, but that's not the real lesson. We're going to talk about what, what the real lesson of palbociclib is. And finally, we're going to talk about reporting harms more transparently in trials of cancer drugs. Is every cancer drug ever acceptable, manageable, feasible, has a favorable toxicity profile, or tolerable or well-tolerated? That's what Bishal Gaywali and colleagues have taken a deep look at. And best for last, Talal Halal is here in Portland, Oregon, doing a visiting rotation on the hematology service, and he walked by my office door, and thus he found himself giving the plenary session. So he's going to talk to you about what he learned, what are the kinds of papers that trainees should pursue, and what is the kind of research trainees should turn their back to? What is the type of projects that are low value and really pollute the information space of scientific publishing? What are the kind of studies you should just say no to? He's going to talk about that. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, Go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It it really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. The first article I want to talk about was an article that almost made it past my cut. Because I had meant to talk about this article on a prior episode, but we kept getting postponed because some other really important and interesting articles pushed this aside. But now, I won't let it go any further. I finally have the time to talk about it in depth. This is a JAMA Oncology paper that came out on August 30th, 2018, entitled NAB Paclitaxel and Gemcitabine as First-Line Treatment of Advanced or Metastatic Cholangiocarcinoma, a Phase two Clinical Trial. Make no mistake about this, this is an uncontrolled Phase two Clinical Trial of 74 patients. And here's how they conclude. Although the trial did not meet its primary efficacy endpoint, the results indicate that a NAB paclitaxel plus gemcitabine regimen was well tolerated and may be an alternative option to current therapeutic approaches for advanced cholangiocarcinoma. So in other words, even though we didn't meet what we set out to meet, you could still use this if you want to. That's really what it's saying. It's saying, why not use this if you want to? It's another choice after all. It is a set of drugs. And of course, one of those drugs is a very expensive drug, and that drug is Abraxane, or Nabpaclitaxel. And of course, the study was funded by the Celgene Corporation. Ah, the makers of Nabpaclitaxel. Now, why do I find this so interesting? Well, let's just talk about the paper very briefly. We took 74 patients with advanced or metastatic cholangiocarcinoma. We all know that is a very difficult to treat cancer. We administered to them a doublet chemotherapy of gemcitabine plus a chemotherapy drug. We set out to assess whether or not a benchmark PFS was attained. 
In other words, the trial was powered to detect an alternative hypothesis of a six-month PFS of 70% and the null of 55% at that time. Okay, um, listeners should know that many phase two clinical trials that are uncontrolled are powered to detect some achieved level of response rate or some achieved PFS at some time point. See, it's an uncontrolled trial. You can't compare it to anything. So one must say, we're going to give a drug to 50 people and we're powered to detect a response rate of 40%. Uh, we're looking to find our goal is to see if 40% or more people who get this drug will be responders, for instance. This has chosen to pick a six-month PFS, they pick 70%. Why do they pick 70%? Because they think that's slightly better than the current standard of care, cisplatin or gemcitabine, which is used in this space. Okay, now here's where it gets interesting. Patients in this uncontrolled phase two trial were enrolled in a multi-center fashion between 2014 and 2016, okay? And there's a certain PFS that we're targeting. And we did not achieve that PFS. But the investigators are not dissuaded. They still believe it's alternative treatment options, and they bolster that argument with some of these other sentences. Nevertheless, the primary endpoint in this trial, along with the secondary efficacy endpoints of median PFS of 7.7 months and median OS of 12.4 months, was similar to the phase three randomized control trial ABCO2, which had a median PFS of eight months and median OS of 11.7 months. Okay, so in other words, even though we didn't get that six-month PFS that we wanted, we still have a median PFS and a median OS around the same as the prevailing standard of care. But here's the kicker. The prevailing standard of care, cisplatin and gemcitabine, that combination used in advanced or metastatic cholangiocarcinoma, was not based on an uncontrolled phase two trial. It was based on a randomized control trial where the combination cisgem was tested against gemcitabine. And it found that the combination improved overall survival, which is the most important endpoint in this space, to 11.7 months versus 8.1 months and improved PFS of eight versus five months with roughly comparable toxicity, which has established cisgem as the standard of care. That trial enrolled patients between February 2002 and October 2008. That trial enrolled patients in the UK almost a decade before the uncontrolled phase two study in JAM Oncology. That trial accrued 410 patients. The JAM Oncology study accrued 74 patients. So, I want to talk to the plenary session listeners about oncology data. There is a general principle in oncology, it's part of the unspoken or tacit curriculum of oncology, which is that when you go with the initial therapy of a metastatic cancer, for the most part, in almost all common tumor types, that is on the basis of randomized controlled trial data. We are fortunate that in lung and breast and colon and uh, cholangiocarcinoma, we have randomized control trials that establish what our initial therapy is, okay? And in this setting, we have a randomized control trial that shows cisgem is superior to gemcitabine, no doubt about it. It improves overall survival. If you want to dethrone the standard of care, you have to randomize your regimen against the standard of care. You cannot perform an uncontrolled phase two trial and try to carve out that market share. Well, at least you wouldn't be able to once upon a time. It was considered not in accordance with the principles of oncology. Uh, but now I think through marketing, um, the company is likely hopeful that they will do that. 
and they'll likely market this based on different toxicity profile and, and that sort of stuff. And of course, people are very good at selling you whatever toxicity you think you should or should not have. On this podcast, I think I previously pointed out that um, neuropathy is really, really bad unless, of course, you have a novel drug that you're going up against bleomycin and you have neuropathy and bleo doesn't, and then suddenly neuropathy is very manageable and, and can be well tolerated and mostly returns to baseline when you stop the drug, right? So we change how we interpret toxicity based on whichever drug is the most costly drug in that space and whichever marketing arm wants you to think of that toxicity is either good or bad, depending on the situation. Um, it's part of the uh, schizophrenia of, I think, of oncology when you get these kind of dueling messages. In this case, I think we know cross-trial comparisons can tell you something very, very rough. They can tell you if roughly one of these two regimens is some sort of near curative treatment. If, if one of these was like an imatinib and you did a cross-trial comparison, median survival in cisgem was 12 months, median survival on, on this novel drug was not reached and we followed 100 people for five years and not a single one has experienced the endpoint. Okay, now, a, you know, a cross-trial comparison can tell you that this is a parachute-level intervention, that there is a huge effect size here. Maybe randomization is not necessary. But when a trial is run 10 years later, uncontrolled, and you achieve similar overall survival to a trial run 10 years before with imaging that's 10 years more primitive. Thus, there are some people enrolled in the modern trial likely who would be unrecognizable with metastatic disease earlier. This is go back to a podcast where I talk about a paper I did with Go Nishikawa. Um, one cannot look for very small differences and draw firm conclusions. One cannot conclude that NAB, paclitaxel, and gemcitabine is non-inferior. One cannot conclude it is roughly the same. One cannot conclude it is superior. In fact, it could be in quite inferior. It could be almost the same as gem alone. You just don't know. If you want to validate your costly new drug in this space, do a randomized trial. That's what it takes. You don't need an uncontrolled study. It's not very useful. I'll give you an analogy. Imagine after the Super Bowl, a Super Bowl of two good teams, they play each other. And after the Super Bowl, we see the final scoreboard. And let's say, and I hate to say this, but let's say the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Okay, they won the game fair and square. Let's say this time, let's say it was a fair game. Okay, now let's say somebody comes to the table and they say, you know what? I know the Patriots won this year's Super Bowl, but I'm willing to say that this team I've assembled, they're an alternative Super Bowl winning group. Here's why. If you take my players put together and you ask them to bench press, they can bench press roughly the same amount that all the Patriots players can bench press. Ergo, they would be just as good, right? And they can run just as fast and they can meet all these metrics just as fast. Can they actually play the Patriots and prove they can beat them? There's no need for that. Okay, it's the same thing. When you want to establish your regiment as either superior to or non-inferior to the standard of care, you have to conduct a randomized controlled trial against standard of care. You cannot conduct an uncontrolled phase two clinical trial and seek to carve out that market share. There is more noise in the comparison than there is signal between cisgem and gem. Let me explain that again. The difference between cisgem and gem, the difference that led to the creation of the standard of care was an improvement in median OS from eight to 11 months, roughly four months. 
there is more uncertainty in the cross-trial comparison than there is in that signal. If you compared these true, and I did a randomized trial, and let's say NAB-Paclitaxel gem has a median survival of 12 months, but let's say cis-gem had 17 months or 16 months. Is that possible? Yeah, absolutely that's possible. And let's say I did a three-arm study today in 2018. What if gem alone gets a median survival of 11 months, nabpaclitaxel gem is 12, and then cisgem is 16 months, hypothetically? Is that is that possible? Absolutely it's possible. It's absolutely possible that that could be the outcome. Of course, it could go the other way. But you don't know that until you do the study. That's why you need studies. There is no reason why Celgene needs to do the uncontrolled phase two trial. In fact, there's a word for such a study. These studies are typically called seeding trials. They are meant to seed the literature with the appearance that you have generated some useful bit of information when you have done no such thing. You've not generated anything useful because there's more noise in the comparison than there was signal in the very original study. The other thing I wanna say here is these kind of studies would likely not be done and not gain traction were it not for an organization called the NCCN and other compendia. These are compendia that by law, CMS has to pay for recommendations above a certain level of evidence, and there's different thresholds for each compendia. And if the compendia recommends this as an option at that certain level of evidence or consensus, the CMS must pay for those drugs for that purpose. They cannot negotiate the price. In a paper in the British Medical Journal that Jeff Wagner has come on this podcast to explain, we find that many of those recommendations are to strip required inclusion criteria to expand the use of these drugs. And that might be okay if the people making those recommendations were one, not heavily conflicted, except Aaron Mitchell and colleagues have proven that they are heavily conflicted. 85% of them receive personal payments from the industry. That's higher than the average bear. That's more than the average oncologist in America because we see over and over in study after study that experts tend to have greater conflicts. So does it really make sense that you have a group of conflicted experts deciding what uncontrolled or gray data is used for coverage decisions at a large national payer uh, that is unable to negotiate price? I think that doesn't make that much sense. And the other thing that doesn't make so much sense is that the manufacturer of the compound has all of the resources and ability to conduct the correct studies if they wish to have that market share. Instead, they perform uncontrolled studies of low value, of low evidence-based value. Um, they oversell the findings, although the trial did not meet the primary efficacy endpoint, its results indicate that nabpaclitaxel-plus-gem is well tolerated, of course, what isn't, and maybe an alternative option to current therapeutic approaches. Uh, maybe an alternative. Well, thank you for that. Unfortunately, you've proven none of those things, and you shouldn't be saying those things. You should just say, we didn't meet our pre-specified endpoint, and you really should ask yourself why you didn't do a randomized control trial, and why now you seem rather unwilling to do a randomized control trial. So, what's the lesson? If the standard of care in a cancer is on the basis of a randomized control trial, and if the benefit of that standard of care is a modest step forward, as cisgem is over gem, which is true for most cancers, these, you know, where we do have randomized trials, it's a modest step forward. One cannot accept an uncontrolled phase two study, an apples and oranges comparison with roughly similar results, because there is likely more uncertainty in the comparison than there was benefit in the randomized trial. You know, you so easily could get something that's no better than your control arm. So we cannot practice this way. We need randomized trials here. So it's an RCT or bus zone. When the Patriots earn the Super Bowl championship by competing in a football game, you can't take away the crown just by showing you can bench press more. You have to actually play them and beat them in the game, okay? It's the same principle. 
Well, that's the lesson of this paper. Next, I want to talk about a little study that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine called Paloma 3. This is a randomized control trial of palbociclib and fulvestrant versus fulvestrant alone in advanced or metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. This trial is the updated results of Paloma 3, which looked at overall survival. Now here's what I want to say, and I've said this before in this podcast. This is a highly lethal condition. Metastatic breast cancer is highly lethal. In this trial, 50% of patients were dead in less than three years and 30 months. So what you want from novel $10,000 per month drugs in this space is to improve overall survival. And here's what they found. The combination did not reach significance in the intention to treat population. There is not a statistical significant improvement in overall survival in this study, despite the fact that this is a highly lethal cancer with a median survival around 30 months. There was a numerical increase that they spend a lot of time highlighting, but it did not meet significance. And frankly, that's just not good enough. We need drugs that improve overall survival for highly lethal conditions, and I've talked about that before on this podcast. But that's not what I want to dwell on today. I think it's clear that all the CD4-6, CDK4-6 inhibitors have fallen short so far of that OS benchmark that should be the benchmark that they strive to improve. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about why Palbo is a very bad thing that, has had, that we've had in oncology. So a few years ago, Bashal Gaywali and I wrote a paper in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology called Drugs That Lack Single Agent Activity, Are They Worth Pursuing in Combination? And what we sought was a set of all the drugs with less than 10% response rate as single agent activity in cancers that came to market only in combination with some backbone of drug, of which palbociclib is one. It has very poor single agent activity, and it came to market only in combination with fulvestrant or letrozole. What we found was that, as a general rule, all of these drugs were very, very poor. Um, only 71% improved overall survival, and the median improvement in PFS among all these drugs was 2.2 months of PFS, and OS was 1.4 months, with a range of 1.4 to 3.7 months. So as a general rule, that these drugs that slipped by, lacking single agent activity, were probably a little bit worse than the average drug. Remember, Foho and colleagues found the average solid tumor drug was 2.1 month survival benefit. Here it's 1.4 months. They are very marginal. We sought to argue that the absence of single agent activity is a warning sign and perhaps a sign that your drug should not move forward in drug development. It is, even if it is the very best lucky drug that does succeed in a phase three trial with a nominally significant p-value, it is overwhelmingly likely to have a marginal effect size at best. What I want to say here is, by showing that these drugs that do succeed, lacking single agent activity, are so marginal, we try to argue that perhaps these drugs are best abandoned in drug development. They take tremendous cost and opportunity cost. Um, they can be combined with almost any amount of backbone drugs and tested in many, many combinations that opportunities are immense. And yet, 
even the very few that do succeed are very marginal. So if we turned our back on drugs that lack single-agent activity, we would not be missing out on game-changers, home runs, and miracles. We will be missing out on many, many marginal drugs. So in fact, drugs that lack single-agent activity, it might be a good rule of thumb in terms of what drugs to prioritize for drug development. The reason palbociclib is so damning to the oncology profession is that it is so financially successful. This is a drug that is very, very lucrative to the company to manufacture. It has earned billions of dollars for Pfizer. It is widely used in hormone receptor positive breast cancer, which is a huge market share, and it's a drug that lacks single agent activity. So the point I wanna make is the legacy of palbociclib is that companies will be unable to abandon drugs that lack single-agent activity. Even if the drug lacks single-agent activity, somebody in the company will say, how do you know this isn't the next palbociclib, the next costly drug that fails to show survival benefit even in a highly lethal condition? No, that's not how they see it. The next palbociclib, a drug that can earn you billions and billions and billions of dollars. That's how they see it. So you will not see drug development move away from many, many combinations of highly unpromising agents lacking single-agent activity, as long as drugs that lack single-agent activity can reap such high profits. And that, more than anything, is the legacy of palbociclib. It is a drug that is so profitable and does so well in the marketplace that despite the fact it fails to improve overall survival and has 84% any-grade neutropenia, 60% any-grade leukopenia, 54% any-grade infections versus a placebo arm of 3.5%, 5.2%, and 34%, despite the fact that it has real hematologic toxicity and fails to improve OS, it is a drug class that will be pursued, has already been pursued, and it is a principle of oncology drug development that we will not be able to abandon the drugs that lack single-agent activity. And for that reason, you will see a deluge of clinical trials that are run for Hail Mary drugs, um, drugs with almost no preclinical rationale on the hopes that you get anomaly significant p-value and you can make a fortune. Um, so I think the approval of palvociclib has repercussions far beyond breast cancer and has tremendous repercussions for drug development. And I'm not sure those are repercussions we're gonna be happy about. Next, I want to talk about a BMJ analysis paper called Reporting Harms More Transparently in Trials of Cancer Drugs. This is by Bashal Gaywali and colleagues. They write, Studies of cancer drugs often use terms that downplay the seriousness of adverse events. Bashal and colleagues call for greater clarity and transparency. So what are these terms that downplay cancer drug side effects? Well, here they are. Box number one, acceptable, manageable, feasible, the treatment is feasible, favorable toxicity profile, tolerable or well-tolerated or safe. Yes, indeed, we see these words all over the place. Our study showed that super toxic drug is tolerable or well-tolerated. It is manageable. Side effects are manageable and expected. They're always expected. They're never unexpected. We knew what we we're getting. So they make this point and they have one, I think, very nice statistic in this paper which was after looking at 122 trials of cancer drugs in top journals, they found 43% of them contain terms that downplay harms. 
14 of these studies did not report any data on severe AEs, 22 had no data on serious events, and 2 had no data on deaths. So they are under-reporting the AEs while simultaneously assuring you that they are acceptable, tolerable, or favorable toxicity profile. I think this is concerning. I think this is something that we see over and over in oncology. Um, Bishal and colleagues, they have a bunch of good suggestions, like get clear on what you mean by tolerable, tolerable according to whom, how did you measure that, who says it's tolerable, um, well tolerated compared to what, uh, acceptable to whom, did you ask the patients, was it acceptable to them? I think those can go a long way towards doing this, towards improving the reporting here. Um, I think we also have to address the fundamental conflict in this space, which is that as long as the design and conduct and interpretation and writing and dissemination of the clinical study is in the hands of the company that stands to make or lose hundreds of millions of dollars based on the interpretation of that study, you will see at, at every opportunity favorable subgroup analyses preferred over unfavorable. Um, you'll see harms minimized, benefits overemphasized, um, and you'll see that in the manuscript insofar as the editors permit. And you'll see that in the marketing material to a far greater extent. Um, I don't know what to say. I think this is really a theme that we talk a lot about on this podcast. I think this is why we need impartiality in this space. This is why conflict of interest at the individual provider and expert level, I think, is not tenable. I think it's an untenable proposition. I think disclosure is not the solution. We need divestment. And I think ultimately, we need to increase the percent of clinical trials in cancer medicine where the design, conduct, and interpretation are in the hands of non-conflicted participants. Um, that's really the fundamental way for a more honest appraisal of benefits and harms. So I commend Bishal and colleagues for drawing attention to this problem, it's something that many of us joke about, comment about quite frequently. Um, and I think it's good to take something that you have strong intuition and feelings about and quantify it. And here they specifically quantify that 43% of these clinical studies use these terms that downplay harms. So kudos to them. I'm back here in plenary session HQ with Dr. Talal Halal. He's a visiting fellow from Mayo Scottsdale, and he's been on this program before because we talked to him about MRD. He and I wrote the paper in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, and he did a wonderful job explaining um, the concept of M MRD, uh, which is a tricky concept, let's be honest. It's a tricky concept, and trial-level surrogacy is a very tricky concept. He's back here at OHSU. For how long are you here, Talal? I'm here for uh, the month of November. If you will have me. <laughs> if you'll have me. Well, I don't know if I had much uh, choice in the matter, but because you're here to work on the benign hematology service primarily. That's correct. With uh, legendary hematologist, Dr. Tom DeLore. Tom DeLore is uh, one of the senior hematologists here. He's the head of the hematology section. Um, he's been here quite a long time. I, I don't even want to speculate how long, but he's been here a long time since his residency um, and his fellowship. And um, he's originally a Hoosier. Uh, and he, uh, like myself, uh, and he does a great deal of work on the issues of benign hematology. Um, he's one of those people who's thought about it so much, you can almost never present him with a situation he hasn't experienced before and he doesn't have a good idea of. Would you agree? I, I definitely agree. I haven't had a lot of time to work with him yet, but I definitely learned 
something in that one day of clinic, hopefully oh, next so week. So he's on service next week and we'll be, we'll be rounding. And you'll get the full Delorean. I'll get the full Delorean. <laughs> <laughs> so how, um, it's, it's unusual for fellows to take a break from their schedule and uh, come and do a visiting rotation in any program. Um, what motivated you to do that? Two things. Uh, the first was I wanted to get this different exposure to benign hematology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a consult service at Mayo uh, in Phoenix, and it's it's very haphazard type of thing. And you know, there's a lot of cases that we end up seeing. Some of them benign heme, but a lot of it is just new diagnosis of malignant hematologic I see. Uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. And and I just wanted to get a different type of flavor, you mm-hmm. know, somewhere else. And I, I talked to uh, to Dr. Delory before, and um, you know, kind of interacted with him through Twitter and mm, Bloodman, Bloodman, and yeah. uh, you know, it kind of it worked out. And I, you know, the reason I wanted to come to a different institution is is just basically seeing a different form of practice, you know, different uh, method of practicing. And I think there's a lot of benefit in, in going to different institutions to do to do that specifically just to, it makes you a little bit more versatile I think I uh, could not agree with you more um, you know I did my medical school at one hospital um, where we actually rotated to I think one two three three at least three others so I saw four hospitals during my medical training then in residency we divided our time between the Chicago VA and a Northwestern University so that's another two hospitals Fellowship, we also got farmed out. We got sent to um, three or four hospitals in the DC, Baltimore area. Um, so that gives you some perspective because um, you so easily ignore and do not see those institutional practices that really are unique. Mm-hmm. And you become blind to them by just being in one place. And you go somewhere else and boom, it just hits you. Right, exactly. And that's one of the main drives for me to actually to have moved from Lexington uh, after residency, where I did residency at the University of Kentucky, and moved to Phoenix, it was really just I wanted to to get a different perspective on it, you know, a different way of doing things, and um, and that was indeed the case, definitely, and 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 that for, along the same lines is the reason why I would move uh, somewhere else after fellowship. I see, and you will be, um, and I but, will be. Uh, um, maybe not all of that's ready for uh, public disclosure, yeah. uh, but um, and that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today. I have two. I have two big things I lined up to talk to you about. But one is, um, you uh, are looking for a faculty or early career job um, that requires a visa waiver, right. and that's a situation that many international medical graduates face. And uh, it's a situation that um, many other people may not understand the complexity of, uh, may not understand how challenging it is. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could walk us through sort of how do you think about this and what can the listeners know about it? They probably know nothing about it, actually. I'm, I've known, I just happen to know because of where I went to fellowship, there were a yeah. bunch of people on visas. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, that's not always the case everywhere. Right. I think, you know, there are, the first time you ever face this is when you are applying for a residency as an international medical graduate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are two tracks you can take. Um, usually, you're either sponsored by sort of a third party. It's called the Educational Commission of Foreign Medical Graduates. And you end up, you know, going doing the USMLEs and becoming certified by them. And they sponsor something called a J-1 visa. Mm-hmm. Um, this J-1 visa basically states that you're going to go to the U.S. to complete medical training mm-hmm. and um, 
as long as you have your proper paperwork in that program, you can basically stay there to a maximum of seven years. I see. In training. In training. And then conditional on something after training. You have to do something for three years after right. training, right? So basically after training, initially what you're signing on for is um, you go back to your country. Oh, I see. Or wherever you were lived last. Mm-hmm. Um, and bring that knowledge to, to your to your home country. And so it's called the Exchange Vis- Visitor Program. I don't know if an exchange actually occurs. Because the majority of people, you think, um, probably end up staying in the United States in some fashion. I would say, you know, probably more than 70%. Mm-hmm. Um, now, once you leave, you can reapply, but usually you have to do that two years later at least. Oh, I see. So you leave for two years and then you can reapply. That becomes a little tricky because you have to keep your connections with the U.S. or whatever institution you want to go to. And, you know, if you've practiced somewhere else for two years, you may have lost some of what you gained here. And, you know, it's not as attractive. So people who want to build a career, specifically in academics, um, you know, it's probably hard for them to go back to their home country and practice for two years and come back here. Of course, yeah. And so... um so then the more common path is probably to to stay on in faculty positions here, faculty positions or jobs. Right. And the reason I say that is because um, the particular type of job that this visa makes one eligible for is a waiver job, a J-1 waiver visa, mm-hmm. um, which typically involves some service to the underserved communities in the United States. Is that right? Correct. So it's the most common route is called the Conrad 30 uh-huh. program, which basically um, is 30 spots per state that are... Uh, allocated for people who um, want to go work in underserved areas. Typically, these spots are for primary care. Oh, really? Okay. So, you know, family medicine, maybe hospital medicine, OB-GYN, you can apply for those. There's a timeline for it. There's a deadline. It's usually quite early in the year, uh, the academic year. And um, and the majority of those jobs, though, are private practice jobs in rural communities. Correct. So it has to be underserved. It has to be uh, in an institution that is basically classified as an underserved location I by see. the state. I see. But um, some universities are able to say that our satellite clinic is perhaps underserved, or even if our university is in a very underserved area, they can perhaps have yeah. a few of these Conrad 30 spots? Some universities do. Uh, some satellite clinics do. You have to meet a requirement of clinical work in these clinics. Mm-hmm. So if you do sign up for these jobs, you you might need to go to that satellite clinic two or three times a week. I see. Right. Um, it's not volume. just mm-hmm. the fact that it's there. Uh, so, yeah, there's a volume. VAs usually uh, mm-hmm. are considered underserved, and so that's one other track. You need to, the institution has to advertise a job for American citizens first. Oh, I see. And if, if nobody wants to go there, then it kind of opens up for, for uh, people who need a waiver. Now, you know, I don't know, I don't know this about you. Where did you do your medical school? I did medical school in Bahrain. In Bahrain. And, and you're originally from Syria. Yeah. I see. And when you set out for your faculty job, um, you really did want preferentially, uh, if at all possible, to be within academic medicine. I did. I, you know, I've been in academic medicine since I started here in residency, and you know, I like I like the I like the dynamic of academic medicine. I mean, there are some downsides to it, I think, but mm-hmm. um, but the fact that you can work with trainees and 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 get that spectrum of medical students, residents, fellows, um, have a little bit more, um, you know potentially a little bit more time to work on academic pursuits. 
Um, and you know, just the, the ability to actually follow that through is, is, is really attractive to me. Yeah, and there's only a few hundred thousand downsides or so, but they're mostly, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of upsides. Um, but, I, but I do think, uh, you know, of course. I, I, I did go back and forth yeah. a lot. You know, I think, you know, through residency, where I did residency, it was, you know, an, a, a sort of an academic center in a, in a big county, and, 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 and it was a referral center, and we saw all types of patients. And um, I ended up, you know, going through phases where I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do fellowship, and so to me at the time, that was really what I focused on. Mm-hmm. In fellowship, I went back and forth a lot about career. Because in part, because, and I, I think you and I feel the same way, you like the clinic. I mean, I like the clinic. I like seeing patients. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mind it at all. I really enjoy it. I think it's probably one of the most fulfilling parts of the job. Yeah. But in addition to that, I also do like spending time with the students and residents and, and fellows like yourself. I mean, you and I, I don't think we'd ever met until like, what, just a few days ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we've written some papers together and we work right. in some projects and, and that's all through, I think, the broader auspices of academic medicine. Exactly. Um, and you get to think about things uh, that other people don't think about or don't talk about. And maybe some things, if you're ever so lucky, um, you're like the first person ever to find or to describe or talk about some piece of data. Mm-hmm. That's that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, somebody asked me recently, like, um, you know, do you, do you get excited when you publish a paper? And I would say that I remember very distinctly, you know, earlier on when I was, really, you know, interested in some topics and we spent a lot of time working on a paper and you published it, like that feeling of excitement you get when you get the paper. But I'll tell you now, after you publish a bunch of papers, I, I don't find that feeling of excitement from publishing the paper. That's not the moment I get excited. But I still do get excited in a moment. The moment I get excited is the moment where you talk about something with somebody. You've been talking about it for a while. Um, maybe you send them out to go go get some data. Come back and let's talk about that data. And they come back to you and they're like, let me show you this figure. I went out, got this data, and this is what I found. And they slide the figure across the table. You know, that's mm-hmm. the moment you look at the figure like, oh wow, that's what it is, huh? Yeah. And um, <laughs> you know, you and I are working on something. That's kind of the feeling I got when you called me up and talked about like what you had found. Um, right. And I don't want to tell them what it is because they're gonna scoop us out there. <laughs> um, and so, what is it for you? Is is it like that kind of moment, like that discovery moment, or what do you like about it the most? Yeah, I mean, I think what you describe is pretty accurate. I remember in residency, you know, I, I worked a lot on things like simple things like case reports and just sort of <clears throat> learning the process of how to publish anything. And, you know, initially it was because I was hoping to apply for a fellowship and I knew it was a little more competitive. And so just even simple case reports, that first email you get of, you know, Congratulations has been accepted. It's been accepted. But even the email of, you know, we we need you to review these certain things or make some edits. You That's know? exciting, too. That was exciting because yeah, I got rejections door. first. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. the stone cold, like, yeah. oh, boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when it's reviewed and, and you get all these comments, you're like, okay, I can actually make it better and uh, and, and, and re, resubmit it, and, and then it's accepted. Didn't you do a meta-analysis on uh, rituximab and mantle cell lymphoma? I feel mm-hmm. like you yeah. did, right? Yeah. That's so funny. I I found that because I was talking about that topic and I was trying to find a meta-analysis about that. So I came to it a different way, not because I know you. Um, when did you do that? As a fellow? Yeah, we did that uh, sort of 
Yeah, earlier this year, actually. I submitted it for ASCO mm-hmm. um, and, and, and wrote the paper right after ASCO. So that's an interesting thing because it's like a clinical situation we see all the time. There's at least three studies, if I can recall, three or four mm-hmm. studies. Um, and, you know, you did a pooled point estimate. And I think the I-squared, the heterogeneity was pretty low, actually, mm-hmm. even though people had um, interpreted the studies as uh, different. Right. Uh, when the I-squared is that low, I think you start to think there is some homogeneity to this signal. Right, right. Uh, so that was very interesting. Okay. Um, I still want to talk a little bit more about this, but I know you got to go in a little bit. So then I want to shift gears and talk about the other the other topic I really um, has been on my mind lately. Oh, this clinic you're going to. They, they won't mind if you're a few minutes late. You tell them you're giving a plenary session. <laughs> I'll tell them I was at the plenary session. Yeah, you're at the, you're giving the plenary session. Yeah, the plenary yeah. Session. Well, how can they fault you for that? <laughs> the audience of thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands for, for all, all we know. You know, I was thinking recently about this entire thing that we do in academics, and um, um, obviously the process is, you know, there's a lot that is appealing about the process. But I want to talk about what's not appealing about the dissemination, which is the publishing world. Right. It just hit me the other day that let's just think what we're doing in academic medicine. We are, um, many, many people are highly intelligent who have really tremendous skills and their time per hour is a valuable commodity. They're some of the few people who can actually think about certain topics or see patients with certain ailments, and they're very skilled people. And we take this time, and we take perhaps hundreds or thousands of hours, and we take that time and resources, and we bundle it into like research papers, like these products of the research enterprise. Like this is what we found, and we spent all this time and effort to do this as honestly and as truly as we could do it. Um, and then maybe some people who aren't doing it to that quality, but at least they're putting their work into it. And then what we do is we submit it to these academic publishing journals, a few of which are wonderful. They're the ones you and I read every week and Mm -hmm. we talk about and we think about, but hundreds of thousands of which, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of thousands of which are marginal, mediocre, almost read by nobody. If I gave it to my own mother, I doubt she would read it, you know, those Mm -hmm. kind of journals. Um, We sign over our copyright. So we literally give them this intellectual property for nothing. In addition to that, we are bombarded with email requests to review, 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 Mm -hmm. um, to the point where many of us have to set limits because we just can't live a life of reviewing, uh, this nomadic life where all I do is review paper. I can't can't live that life, so I have to set limits. And we review for, again, nothing, for just donating our time and energy to make the world a better place. Okay, maybe that's not the the worst thing. We transfer our copyright, we fork over the paper to the journal. then we're largely subject to the whims of the journal. When will they publish? Will they publish next month, three months from now, five months from now, a year from now? Will they publish when I'm still interested in the topic or past the point where I'm no longer interested and it's no longer salient? Sometimes they do that. And then who will read the article? Uh, if it were not for places like social media and Twitter, we may be uh, publishing these articles. And for many years I did, there was no Twitter back then. And uh, I know they were read by very, very few people. Sometimes mm-hmm. you click on it and it says, uh, this has been viewed a hundred times. And I know that 80 is me, actually. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately 80 times I've clicked on it myself. <laughs> so there's only a few other people looking at it. Um, okay, so the readership is poor. Then these 
many of these organizations that publish these journals, they have many, many, many journals, and they are actually quite lucrative publishing enterprises. They take ads and they put them in their journal and they sell the journals to um, perhaps a few subscribers, but perhaps many more university libraries who pay hand over fist for these articles. And when people go online and every once in a while you want an article and it says it costs $158 for this one article, like what the heck? Um, and and the people have published the profit margins of these journals, of these large conglomerate journal companies, and they exceed pharmaceutical industry. I mean, mm -hmm. they're like mid double digits, like 40% profit on revenue. Mm -hmm. Okay, what are we doing? <laughs> Does it ever give you, yeah. Well, I think you have to look at, you know, so the motives for publishing in general, and I think they vary between people, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, my motives for publishing have changed significantly over the last five years. As you've progressed, okay, go on, tell us through. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, initially it was, like I said, I just needed a fellowship spot, and that's why I was publishing. And, you know, anything that I would see, even if it wasn't very interesting to me at the beginning, I would just work on it, because I knew there was a, a different kind of uh, goal that I was shooting for. It wasn't really just to see my name out there. It was because I want somebody to look at my CV. And say, give this guy an interview. Right. And then can I just make a quick aside? You know, we've actually, uh, program directors, we've studied this empirically in a paper in PLOS One and an original paper in the American Journal of Medicine. And we find the number of publications an IM resident has uh, at the time of application for IM fellowship residency has poor predictive value about subsequent publications. So Talal is the exception and not the <laughs> rule. Okay, that's a disclaimer. Okay, back. Okay, so the, when you initially did it is because you knew that these program directors like to play the game, and the name of the game is does this person have pubs, will this person be an academic? That's the game, and to be honest, let's be honest, no one should be faulted for that because that's right. the game that others have constructed yeah. for any pursuit of any fellowship, yeah. right? So that was initially my 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 sort of reason for doing mm -hmm. it, and then, and then as I started doing it, I realized I did like writing, um, and, and I started enjoying it, and I started learning a lot about what I was writing. And so then there was that other layer of actually I was studying about this disease um, or whatever topic it is that I was focused and on. And you found as you're writing the paper, you learn more about it than you knew about it before. Exactly. Right, yeah, and, I find and, that And you too know, hard. I mean, if you write a review article and you have 120 references there, you basically know everything about that topic. Topic. Perhaps even more than the senior author with whom you've written the review article. <laughs> that's like, that's like Perhaps, that. Perhaps, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Um, but you know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, that to me is really very rewarding. And, and mm -hmm. then you see the paper published and I don't really know how many are gonna read it anymore, mm -hmm. but I know that I know about it. Mm -hmm. um, and and as a fellow, that, that, that was really nice. So in, in that sense, a review article is almost like publishing your classroom notes. Exactly. It's the way in which you For learned. everybody to potentially see, even though I know not many will. Mm. Depends on where you publish, because yeah. um, again, like a handful of journals put out review articles and they're really the sorts of things people tuck in their lab coat and walk around with. But most of these review articles that I see churned out all the time are the kinds of things that it's really for the authors and the authors alone probably. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then, the third, it, yeah, the third stage. The third type of, uh, of publishing anything is, is really retrospective stuff that we do in training. Mm -hmm. You know, residents, fellows, they end up, they hear this idea from a, from a faculty, you know, this is a, something you could look into, do a chart review. And then you start generating Kaplan-Meier curves from these retrospective chart reviews, and then, and then initially you're like, oh, this is great, this is actually a, a graph that I've seen in the New England Journal of Medicine, and now I'm producing it. And, right. And then you realize this is actually a lot of, 
I, I know what word you're going to use. <laughs> At, you know, this podcast we've actually ups the um, the uh, the the ranking, and it's actually parental guidance suggested. So you can say it if you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think when you realize there's so many flaws to it sometimes, exactly. and when you start yeah. collecting the data and you realize that. I can change this so easily or misread this note in the chart and, and I'll have a completely different result. You know, the bias that goes into it is just so... The bias is bigger than the signal. Much bigger. Yeah, and, and the moment you realize that, you realize that you are engaged in something that has this veneer and stamp of science on it, but it is no more truth-seeking than like the construction of a children's toy. Like it is just mm -hmm. the construction of some arbitrary thing, and it's yeah. not telling you anything about how the world actually operates. And that's I know I we there, like yeah. to look at something and reference it when we're practicing. You know, I mean, you end up uh, using this drug in a rare mm -hmm. condition, and you've seen maybe a case series of five patients, and right. and and you say, well, I've based it on this paper. And you know, but just don't be surprised if it doesn't work. Right, don't be surprised. And the other situation I see is like, um, uh, I'm trying to, I want to sort of abstract the exact situation I just saw recently, but it's basically a situation where, you know, there's two different regimens of drug we use all the time in this cancer that kind of exists on a spectrum, and people know that maybe one is better than the other in this one setting, and maybe the other one is better than the other in the other setting, and then there's this middle zone where we gen just genuinely don't know, and there's a lack of randomized control trials, and we, and we desperately need those trials to inform decision making. Um, but in the meantime, we don't know, and so the answer is, uh, it's a challenging question. There are differences in side effects and schedule and delivery, and there's biological principles you can think about. But then somebody said, oh, well, recently we did a retrospective chart review of our experience at you know, a certain hospital, and we found that one is better than the other. And they added that on as like another piece of information. And I was like, well, you know, it's interesting to me to think about. Because, um, and this person had, I think, take given more credence to that piece of information than you or I would. We would treat it as just another little fragment of thing to toss onto this discussion. Um, but they're treating it as like this is the the tiebreaker. This is mm -hmm. the definitive event. And I think in many cases these kind of retrospective chart reviews are the illusion of knowledge. It's the illusion that we have learned the answer. Right. But if you think about the confounding by indication, the fact that the people in whom we're deploying X are probably very different than the people in whom we're deploying Y, and there's biases and the doctors choosing that and the hospitals we're looking at and all these sorts of other things, you reach the conclusion that I just really do not know which is better, I still don't know. And this doesn't really change that post-test probability one is better than the other at all. It just doesn't budget it even one bit. Right, and when I, started realizing that I I started losing interest in doing these things mm -hmm. you know I mean there was different motives at different parts of my I don't want to say career but training life so far and um, and then it changed and now I'm thinking I don't you know I mean if someone tells me you hey this is a good idea for a retrospective chart review let's look at these cases I don't know if I want to spend the time doing it anymore you know I'd rather write a review article even though it may not really be read or cited, but I'm going to learn about that disease. And I think for me at this point in my career, my goals are to gain as much knowledge to actually be able to practice as a sort of a junior faculty, you know, starting mm -hmm. somewhere and, and be able to, to give that knowledge to other fellows and residents. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, you see all these papers and, you know, we're not even talking about predatory journals. No, we're not. You're right. We're, ta <laughs> right. we're talking about the real hundred thousand. The real journals, yeah, the real. you know. And, and so you see all these papers and I think most of them 
rightfully so, we take them with a grain of salt. And, and then you end up with the highest sort of tier journals and highest tier papers that end up being, you know, prospect of randomized trials that are the ones that are really informing decision. And um, that's, ju- I, that's just the nature of it. I don't know uh, if it will change. I think the social media scene definitely has an influence on things. It really highlights some things more than others. Um, and I think that, you know, with time, I'm not sure how much do you review? You know, I, when you get invitations from these sort of middle tier journals, do you review their papers? I think they find a hard time finding reviewers sometimes. Yeah, I think they do. And I um, would say that I guess I remember the moment I got my first article to review, mm-hmm. maybe almost a decade ago, you know, um, it's exciting. Like, wow. Yeah. And you almost have this kind you of spend like... more time on it, probably. Oh, a lot of time. Yeah. You spend a lot of time on it because you also look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, who am I to review an article? You know, who am I? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Who am I to review this? You have this kind of the imposter syndrome kind of thing that we've talked about on this podcast. Um, it's exciting. Um, and then uh, you do a few and you do a bunch and um, you still give it, of course, your all. And then you get a lot. And I think there's like a couple years where I was doing... Um, you know, I, I don't I don't want to say like, but it was a pro, perhaps even approaching like one a week, like something like fifty a year or something. And then it's like I just can't I just can't do that many yeah. and do other things I want to do in my life. <laughs> and so then I decided to like I got to prune back a lot. I mean, um, you know, I want to do it well when I do it. I rather do it well than not. You know, I just just don't right. want to do a half job. And so now I'm trying to like make it like maybe I don't know maybe twenty a year is fair. Right. Um, I try to review for the journals that I like to submit to, but I get like emails where it's like, this email comes out of the blue and it's like, you have been registered for this journal. I was like, I've never even heard of this journal. And the yeah. next, like two minutes later, will you review? And um, they do have a hard time reviewing. Um, I mean, me submitting to journals that are that are that type of, you know, middle tier journals, mm-hmm. I've, I've submitted papers to these types of journals and they end up, you know, sitting in the probably editor's desk to find a reviewer for, for months. a month. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, talking about the overall conglomerate thing of, of, of you know, journals and um, we need to improve our understanding of, of how to interpret data. Yeah. And we can't rely on things that are just, you know, that you really can't trust because of their methodology or the way they're written or done. And I think when we start not looking at these papers and, you know, with time, a lot of these journals may not exist. Yeah, and, and that's what I've always said before, um, that I think they need to be pushed into obsole- obsolescence because, like, what, I, what do I actually think, like, a good system would be? There's, like, ten journals we read, maybe five journals in every field. Have those five journals. And then afterwards, just have a preprint server. Mm-hmm. You know, if my journal, if my article doesn't get into the, these five journals, when, and, and I'll tell you, many of them have not, uh, I just post on a preprint server and just let people have at it. Have a comment section at the bottom, like a PubMed Commons, like they once did. Now that's gone. But then just let people just kind of discuss it and talk about it. Yeah. Um, move the review to the post-publication review and just put it out there. Right. Because the other thing is we're use, losing years and years on these papers. Um, but I want to also circle back to this idea that, like, I think we need to change some of the incentives in this system mm-hmm. so that we don't have the incentive for a factory of these retrospective chart reviews. I think, you know, I want to echo what you're saying, which is, I don't know if I necessarily would say, like, you should write a review article instead. But I, what I do agree wholeheartedly is with the idea that, like, the time you spend generating some 
fictional piece of scrap of information, some factoid that has very little fact in it. Um, take that time and invest in just learning about something. Be that if the, if you need to write stuff down to learn, that's the way you do it. Mm-hmm. If you just like to read articles, that's how you learn. If you like to read Frank Harrell's blog post on stats, and that's how you like to learn, or like one of these tutorials by Andrew Althaus on stats, like if that's how you like to learn, you know. But like take that time that you would have spent generating some piece of data that fundamentally cannot move an argument forward or backward in any way and move it towards learning. Oh, and to me, the classic is like uh, retrospective observational study of the IVC filter. I think like a couple years ago, I looked and there's like 40 different such studies and half of them are positive and half of them are negative. And you can guess that the more the interventionalists touch the paper, the more positive it gets. Um, That's the only signal that actually is emerging from the noise. (laughs) The more you put them in, the more you get the result you want. Um, uh, But uh, but the whole thing is useless. Do a randomized trial or, um, well, oh, I know how I like to end that sentence, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's some critics of that. Uh, yeah, do a randomized trial or quiet, or please, quiet. I mean, you're not helping the obs- the commentary by just another retrospective observational study on these topics. Yeah. Um, and, and learn, because I think you're right. Uh, every, every year that goes by in this, don't you feel as if you read articles like even better than you read it the year before? I mean, I haven't felt a year where I've... I did, every year I just feel like I'm reading it a different, like maybe better in my own mind. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the the best way to test it is to look at even randomized trials uh, from 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And look at those publications, look at those papers and see how they were done. And look at a randomized trial that was published last week. And, 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 and what can, do you, yeah, go ahead. I mean, you can see the difference in... Methodological quality. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the statistical methods that are used now are... are I don't know. I mean, let's give them a taste of it. So some of the things I notice when I read like a randomized trial from the 80s or or even early 90s, um, sometimes I can't find the power calculation. I can't find what they were like, what was their hypothesis? I can't find pre-specification of the primary endpoint. Um, And maybe they didn't pre-specify. They just looked at a bunch of things and this is what lo and behold we found. I can't find rationale for sample size. Sample sizes are lower. I can't find um, good explanation of how randomization was done, how blinding was maintained, um, uh, those kinds of things. And sometimes I find like lousy reporting of adverse events, especially in oncology studies where it's like three adverse events reported. You know, yeah. like, what about the rest of it? Right. Um, Grading of adverse events. Yeah. You know, I think that, and so things are moving in the right direction. You know, I think when you kinda, me, Yeah. Well, I want to push you on that a little bit because I think, um, in, in many ways, the randomized trials are better than they've ever been before. They're all hitting like the Jadad score. They're all doing like everything on these checklists, yeah. you know, these these groups. They're bigger randomized trials. The endpoint adjudication is clearer. The statistical plan is very crystal clear. Sometimes they even link to the protocol. But this is what John Yonides always talks about. But in some deep and fundamental ways, the trials are like worse than they've ever been. The choice of control arm is a straw man, which you know Derek and I talked about in Lancet Oncology and you've talked about before and we're gonna talk about more soon. Um, the choice of la- having or not having crossover, you know, not having crossover when you need it or having crossover when you don't need it, mm-hmm. that's been inserted into the study. Um, drug run-in periods where you exclude like 20% of the population like we see with the, this heart failure drug that I really mm-hmm. you know, always criticize. You know, So there's some other ways in which this bias has been inserted like these next order level and then now you have to be like an even more savvy reader to pick that out. Right, so basically trials now are, are being very highly selective of patients that yeah, may oh, not yeah. be very representative of real world and that's that whole idea of you know real world evidence that people are talking about now. I think trials in the past were more like 
like real world. Mm-hmm. You know, they may not be methodologically as rigorous, rigorous, but you know, I think the inclusion criteria were a lot more simple. Uh, and you can actually find them in the paper and not That's in the true. appendix, <laughs> not in the supplement. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so these things, uh, you know, some some things changed to the better, and I guess some things did change to the worse. And you know, at the end of the day, you have to look at a patient in the clinic, and that is the patient you're treating. And w- w- you know, what are you going to base your decisions on? I think in both time periods, you are going to be slightly limited to you know how sure are you. Right when you actually say, this is a treatment I want to give you. and uh, But, you know, that's really what data is for. It's really to, to help us make these decisions. And I think just the, the better we get at doing it, the better we're going to be feeling when we talk to the patients about them. Yeah, and I think um, for all of us who spend time in the clinic, um, we know that there has never been nor will there ever be a time where every single decision you make in the clinic can be proscribed on the basis of randomized control trials. But we also know it is so much more easy to have conversations in the places in which the light has fallen than in the sea of blackness in which it has not fallen at all. And if anything, we need much more light, much more randomization in, in our decision making. We yeah. won't get, we will never light it all up, but, but we right. can light up a lot more than what we've lit up. Right. It'll be kind of like Portland, where there's a little bit of sun there, <laughs> a little bit of cloudiness there. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and that's what that's what listeners don't know, and we shouldn't tell them because then they might move here. Um, <laughs> is that uh, there is a little bit more sun than people than people. Yeah, there's on. sun out there right now. Don't tell them that they're gonna want to come here. <laughs> The last thing I wanted to talk about is um, uh, the, an idea that was posed to me recently. But um, I'm, you know, you're a junior person. You're about to start your faculty career um, very soon. You're about to be, um, you know, graduating your program. Um, what do you? What would you like to accomplish in the next few years? That would like, you know, that's on your checklist. Like, what? What do you hope to do as a doctor, as a researcher, as a scholar, as a teacher? You know, what would make you? What would make you feel content? For me personally, I I I want to find where I would feel more comfortable uh, practicing. That's really my goal in the next two three years. I mean, when I was going through the interview process, um, you know, some places would ask, you know, are you would you see yourself as an educator more or a researcher more? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I know that yet. And maybe maybe I'm just late to the game. I mean, maybe some people know really early on that that's what I want to do. And I, I was talking to a medical student not too long ago, a medical student who wants to be an educator. And that's great. I don't think I'm there yet. And I think that is what I want to find out in the next two years or so. Um, working with fellows, residents, you know, is this going to be natural to me? Is this going to be really, are they going to find it useful? Or am I just sort of saying to myself, I'm good at it, but I'm not? Um, or would I rather do, you know, clinical research? I know I would not be a basic scientist, um, and that's something that I really never, it was just not not, not for me. Um, I'd like to be involved in clinical trials um, one way or another, and, and, and so kind of navigating the politics of that is a little bit dark right now for me. I don't really know what goes into it, and is this something I would enjoy doing? Um, I think that's actually um, a refreshingly good set of goals. Yeah. Because I think like too 
I don't know, obviously there's a lot of pressure upon all of us at all stages to like really uh, state for the record what you want to do and when you're going to do right. it, right? Um, but it's nice to actually be able to say, um, I want to take a few years to explore what's the right fit. Right. And then my, my last question for you, and then I'll let you go. Um, and I've locked the door, so you really have not, <laughs> not been able to leave. Uh, my last question for you is, what advice would you give somebody who's about to start Oncology Fellowship? They're about to come in in July. Um, what do you wish you had known uh, that you learned on the job? Uh, what would you tell them about how to navigate it? You know, what's your advice for first year? What's your advice for second year? I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. Um, I think it was very useful for me to get a lot of exposure in oncology and residency. Mm. You know, I think a lot of us um, think they like hematology and oncology based on maybe maybe a consult service here and there, you know, consulting on a few oncology patients. But really, one thing you need to keep in mind uh, is it's primarily outpatient-based. And if you don't get that outpatient experience in residency, you really may not know what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. Do, you, are you, do you see yourself more in the outpatient setting or do you see yourself more taking care of acutely ill patient in the hospital? And that, I guess there's an overlap in transplant there. You know, you can right. be a transplanter a and, 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 and do that. But, but for the large part, hemonc is an outpatient specialty. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to see yourself. I mean, probably 60 to 70%, maybe even 80% of people that graduate will go into private practice. and. You know, you're you're basically seeing patients every day, four to five days a week, uh, and 80% of those have solid tumor problems, right? So they have, you know, oncologic issues. So if you're, so keep these things in mind, I would say first before you even apply. I see. Um, the second thing is getting that broader perspective, you know, and and and, and look at knowledge for Hemonc, not just from your faculty members where you are, but even even through social media or or um, podcasts. Like podcasts. <laughs> you know, get, I'll pay you later. I mean, oncology is one of those things where, you know, we do a lot of, a lot more research, I think, than other subspecialties. We do, yeah. I think we do, yeah. And more randomized trials. We do more randomized trials. We have more things to sort of uh, talk about, talk about yeah. site reference when we're discussing treatments, and, you know, we base a lot of it on evidence. And and, but, you know, I think because we do that, we, we owe it to ourselves to really understand how to interpret that evidence, uh, probably more than other subspecialists. So, you know, I think that was a big part of my first year is, is really to understand, you know, when we're presenting these graphs in, in didactics, you know, w- what does it mean exactly? What do those numbers mean and to the patient? And, and these things are not, you know, I don't know if every program has dedicated time to teach you these things. I'd, yeah, right. And so, you know, you kind of mm-hmm. have to learn it on your own. Right. The actual oncology part, the clinical practice part, comes pretty easily, I think, uh, once you start doing it. And, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is the first six months are going to be tough. They're tough, yeah. They're very tough because it's it's one of those subspecialties in internal medicine that you don't get a lot of exposure to. And, and so it's kind of like you're an intern again. Um, and, you know, patients will ask you questions that you have no idea how to answer. And um, there's going to be a lot of preparation going on before you go to clinic the following day, and 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 that's all normal, you mm-hmm. know. I think, um, you know, second year is where you kind of start seeing where you want to be, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I've I know people who end up not doing the clinical part, right, and they they try to find positions that because primarily because they don't 
it's emotionally investing, yeah. you know, and, and so it becomes hard to, to keep keep doing it. And if, they, if you don't see yourself doing it for a very long time, it becomes um, hard to keep doing it. So those are some of the things. Yeah, that's um, good. You, you say a lot of the things that I always say, um, like one of the things I always tell people is that when you finish internal medicine residency, you go to cards fellowship, you're gonna hit the ground running because you already probably know a great deal of right. cards. You go to an onc fellowship, you're not gonna hit the ground running. Right. You're gonna need to hit the books because there are many, many things that you may have heard, but you haven't conceptualized in your mind. You don't have a way to think about lymphoma or right. kidney cancer or lung cancer. You just don't have even a conceptual framework to put information in. You're gonna have to start to think about that. The next thing I like to, I would love to echo about what you've said, because I really agree with so much what you said, um, is this idea that um, this is a field that is data rich, and that's good and bad. I mean, it's bad that it's, it's a lot of things to know, uh, but it's good that you know, ideally we're making, I hope, better decisions for our patients because we have invested as a field in generating some credible data. But what it means is, I think, as a fellow. Um, don't go into clinic and say, why are we doing X? The NCCN says so, which always gets me. You yeah. gotta take the next step and say, well, why does the NCN, NCCN say so? Right. And um, and sometimes the answer will be satisfying. It'll be it'll be the LACE meta-analysis, right? right? Something like very satisfying lung cancer. Sometimes the, the answer will be very dissatisfying. And if it's dissatisfying, you have to ask yourself, well, do you agree or disagree with the dissatisfying explanation? Right. And that takes a while um, to do. And then I like to say, like, um, I really have to echo your point about social media. And um, you know, I wrote that article a while back for Medscape where I said, like, how how should you keep up with the literature? And one of my proposals was keep up with the literature in real time, not for every article, but just for a few, because there's a social media discussion that happens every Wednesday at seven at five p.m. Mm-hmm. Eastern time when the New England Journal comes out, and seven p.m. the discussion gets going. You know, that's right. when people are really talking about the article. It's nice to watch those discussions, even if you don't always participate. Right. Um, and uh, but you've over the years you've participated more and more, and uh, you wanted to throw some elbows out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean you start feeling more com- once you actually understand or know more, you feel more comfortable talking about it, and you never know everything. But you know, it's just initially it's kind of like anything in in life. You know, you're you're a little bit more apprehensive, and you're a little bit more. Um, waiting to gain that broader knowledge and then you start talking a little bit more and and getting a different perspective and that's always more helpful one thing I'll add to that is drug approvals you know we we were at a time where we're getting drugs approved every week you know for cancer and um, it's very hard to keep track of those and then you know this next step to take is to say why it was approved and what trials were used and so forth but but even just knowing that there are drugs approved I found social media to be the fastest way to do that. Of course, yeah. You know, just these, just the announcement, and and you can just read the announcement, and then you want to look at the trial, you can look at it. But, but at least you'll have that knowledge. And you know, a patient comes in and says, "I saw this ad. You know, this drug's approved." At least you'll know. You know, and it's it is hard to keep track because you're doing hematology, oncology, and sometimes even benign hematology drugs, right? And so all those TPO agonists for right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I think I think I've I've found it to be very useful, and I didn't. I had the account in residency and never really used it. Um, but but fellowship, specifically Hemong, I found it to be very useful. And as we all know, as listeners will know, the sheer number of approvals is a direct correlation with how good the FDA is doing their job. That's what they like to tell you. <laughs> uh, but you know, I really like your idea about FDA approvals. And in fact, a couple of years ago, when I when I got here, I created that FDA approvals lecture, which is on Wednesdays at one o'clock, which I think it is actually we have one next week. Mm-hmm. And basically, for 
for a while we signed every single approval, but we signed every approval to one of the fellows. And I got this idea from a faculty member at um, National Cancer Institute who used to do this. He used to do them all himself. And I, I was even smarter than him and I, I turfed it out to the fellows. <laughs> <laughs> and so the fellow has to go and present for like 10 minutes. What was the approval? What was the mechanism of action? What was the preclinical or early phase data? What was the pivotal trial data? What were the AEs, side effects. And finally, I make them, I force them to say, would you have approved this drug? Right. And a bunch of the times they say, yeah, but sometimes they say no. And when they say no, I think it's a good, it's a good interesting discussion. When they say yes, I think it's a good discussion too, because sometimes right. I agree, but sometimes I don't agree. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think you're right, like it's hard to keep up, um, but you should at least know, right. you know, this drug was approved in this tumor type. That's step one. And then now to get a little, get a little dig into it a little bit more. Yeah. Well, Halal. Thank you so much for coming in on short notice to plenary session. Oh, thank you for having me. We, this uh, is the plenary session, so it's sort of like I have to put it on my CV now. You should put it on your CV. <laughs> and this is really the pinnacle of achievement in oncology. You know, yeah. Someday you'll be up on the big stage in that auditorium with 6,000 people, and you'll think back to yourself, boy, I really peaked years ago when I was in that uh, dirty office <laughs> <laughs> recording the real plenary session. It's Th- been great. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on air. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.